uh, first of all, can we, we just start with an agreement that God is faithful and everything that he does, right? It's a few things that I want to share with you today concerning this power shot, folks. Uh, one of the elements is when we have a double portion, I typically like to combine the double portions because usually there's a hidden message, a remes in Hebrew. There's a Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew remes, and both of these titles combine together, and we're going to see them. But before we get into that, I want to share something with you. Up to this point right now, we're going to see the different titles that we cover in the book of Vayikra. Thus so far from the opening of, and he called unto now, Kedoshim. So let's look at this. We started with Vayikra, which means, and he called, right? Then we went to the Parashat Zaf, which means command. Then from Zaf, we went to Shemini, which means the eight, right? And then from Shemini, we went to Tazria, which means, and she conceives. And then from Tazria, we went to Merzoah. And the Merzorah is the infected ones, the one who is infected with uh, leprosy, Metoah. And then today, we're going to cover Achai Mot, which is literally after the death, right? And then after Achai Mot, which is the Holy Ones. And here we are. View, very beautiful overview that the Father is revealing in all these titles. Thus so far in the book of Vayikra. So we start with, and he called you out. Did he? He called you out, didn't he? Well, you wouldn't be here if he didn't. All right? So I think we can all agree on that one. So he called you out, right? And then proclaim you as priests. And then after that, he dedicated a new beginning, that is Shemini, and called you to Darosh Darash, search diligently. That's in the parasha Shemini. And then from Shemini, he taught you to conceive and to serve the clean from the unclean. That is the parasha Tazria, right? And then from there, he showed you how to cleanse the unclean. Parasha, parasha Metzoah, right? And then after that, after the death of the flesh, comes holiness. This is a beautiful thing, folks. You see, in the parasha in the Torah, we have to pay attention what Avinu Machinu is trying to reveal to us. See, we really, truly were not able to fully walk this walk and be used as an instrument of God if we don't learn how to die to the flesh. It's one of the elements that God is showing us. By the way, this is one of the elements in the entirety of the book of Sefer Vaikra, which is the entirety of the book of Leviticus. Amen. So, the theme in this parasha, essentially starting with after the death, right? The theme of this parasha is how to enter the presence of the God of Israel. Now, notice what I put in there. God of Israel. Because, you see, God is a generic title that everybody uses today that signifies different meanings. But I'm going to be very specific with you here today. How do you approach the God of Israel? Because as for me, in this ministry, in my house, we serve the God of Israel. No one else. Simply put. The God of Israel. So if it doesn't line up with the God of Israel, we're not going to agree. Simple as that. And I'm okay with that. But how do we enter into his presence is the key in knowing this. Because I believe that each and one of us wants to come before the presence of the God of Israel. Don't we? The issue is we don't know how to. You know, there are like there are different roads supposedly that lead to the same place. I'm here to tell you that that's false. There's only one road, one way. Yeshua said the narrow road that leads to life. Amen. Baruch Hashem. So let's look at this. 
And here, Leviticus 16, 1 and 4 opens up by saying, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Why is it that this is being brought up again? Because now the Torah is revealing different aspects as to why they were struck. You know, many people say, well, they were drinking on the job. Maybe they were. Well, actually, they were. Because this is what I'm saying. It continues to share where their errors were. We don't have to fill in the blanks. The Torah does that for us. It's letting us know in increments where they went wrong. Now, what is the purpose? Well, we don't have a temple today, do we? <laughs> Not here on earth yet, but we are the temple, right? And uh, there is God is still alive, right? Okay, so we still have to come before him, right? Even if you go to your prayer closet and you pray, what are you doing? You enter into his presence. Even if you're going to get into worship, what are you doing? You enter into his presence. So guess what? Parashah Haremot has a lot to do with you today. Let's look at this. It says, when they approached the presence of the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, and he will die or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. Now, this is what we need to pay attention. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. Now, there is um, different levels of this understanding. Because we're going to speak in here prophetically. But we're also going to speak here now in the today. For every word in the, in the scriptures, there's a prophetic meaning. And there's a now meaning. There is no in-between. Is, is it prophetic for us today? Yes or no? Yeah, I believe it is. Is it prophetic for us in the future? Absolutely. So let's look at this. It says, Aaron, he shall put on the holy linen tunic. It starts with that. That's the first thing it says. And the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attire with the linen turban. These are holy garments, essentially. Okay, keep that in mind. Holy garments. In other words, they, uh, Aaron, or to enter into the Holy of Holies, in this case, you have to have special garments to come in. Okay, at a scholar level, this is really what it means, and it ends there. Now, at a spiritual level, there's more to it. Because Scripture says that God is spirit. So we need to understand this also from a spiritual point of view, as well as the letter. So, then he shall bathe his body, it says, in water and put them on, right? So let's see this. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 58 says, But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, notice what Paul is saying in here. He says, when this perishable puts on imperishable. See, Rashaul was a rabbi in the first century taught by Gamaliel. What was very well taught in scriptures. So what is the point of reference that you think Paul is using here? Because you see, in Parashah Mot is teaching us that in order to enter into the Holy of Holies, you have to have special garments. What is Paul's argument in here? That you cannot enter with the perishable. The perishable is talking about your body. These garments. You see in the relevance in here. 
you know, we see something in a temple service that we can apply here in the natural world. So it says in here, but when these, this perishable will have put on imperishable and with this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All death, where is your victory? All death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, it says. But thanks to be God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Now, let me go back for a minute because it says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now, this is where many anti-Torah people like to use this as a verse to say, you see, the Torah is bad. Well, folks, it goes, it goes down to this. I don't believe the Torah is the issue as more as our nature. You know, you tell a five-year-old boy, you can't touch that. What is the first thing he's going to want to do? Okay, does that mean that the commandment is wrong or is the heart of the little kid that's the problem? You see? So the power, it is the law because the law is telling you don't do it. And our nature, our sinful nature is saying, you know what? I'm going to rebel. I'm going to do it. So it stands that the power of sin is the law. But here's the issue. And he's going to address it here. But thanks to be God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Now, he goes on and corrects just in case there's any, any ideas to say that the, the law is bad. He said, thanks to God that he has given us the victory. What victory do you think you're talking about in here? Well, many victories. I mean, God has given us victories left and right. But in the context in here in Corinthians, it's talking about victory over our sinful nature. To obey, to, to essentially submit to God's word. And not one to have the desire to, oh, I'm going to rebel. Because you see, that spirit is no longer attractive for many of us. When we were in the world, we used to love it. Yeah, to rebel is a cool thing. But now it's no longer cool. We don't like that. We fight it, essentially. And this is the victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, that's why, and by the way, whenever Apostle Paul says, therefore, open your ears. Therefore means I'm going to conclude what, it, my, what everything that I have spoken that's confusing all of you. I'm going to go ahead and give you the conclusion. So he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast, right? Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, he says. What is steadfast? Unshakable. To be founded. To be grounded in what you're doing and not be moved by what's happening around you. You ever met people that are that focused that nothing shakes them? This is the desire that Avino Machino wants for each and one of us to be unshakable, to be focused on his work. It says in here, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying in here, essentially without really saying it, is that there is no excuse to say, oh, it's just my human nature. Because that's the part of the spirit. What did Yeshua say? I am sending you the helper to help you with these things. You see, I believe that we use more excuses of our flesh as a clutch to not do what God wants us to do. Because I believe that God's word is absolutely true. We have the ability to overcome. We just got to be willing. Do we fall short? Absolutely, we fall short. But are we aiming to begin with? 
because you see, I believe that if you're aiming and you start the day praising God, you start the day with I give thanks to you, O oh God, for you have returned my soul back to me in faithfulness and compassion. And you start praying throughout the day to give you the strength to be able to carry on. Folks, I put it through the test. It actually works. But when you start the day running off doing your own thing and you forget the Lord, folks, yeah, you're gonna, you don't get wrapped up in everything that's happening out there. And now you're going to be led by the flesh and not the spirit. So the spirit carries a, a weight in how we walk this Torah, essentially. Are we following the Torah through the letter or are we following the Torah through the spirit? Notice we're still following the Torah. That's never done away with. It's how we're doing it. Are we following through the spirit? Or, and by the way, we covered this a few weeks ago in the parasha. That the letters, remember when Moses came down? And the tablets were heavy. What do we learn? The letters of the Torah flew out and the tablets became heavy. Because you see, it was no longer spirit filled. See, it caused death. The letters without the spirit equals death. This is Paul's argument for most of his letters, by the way. So now we're going to see the revelation of the two goats. I want to I share something because I thought it was very, very interesting. And these, since last week we cover. Uh, in the parsha, the, the, the birds. We're going to see a connection in here with the birds and the goats. Let me, let me share this. Leviticus 16.5 says, He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering, it says. Okay? Now, this is talking about making atonement. And now Hashem is revealing, because of what happened to Nadab and Abihu and the death, He's revealing now how to approach Him properly so that you may live. Now, again, this is prophetically talking about the future, right? But it's also prophetically talking about now. I mean, you can enter into God's presence today. You don't have to wait until you die to do that, folks. You can still enter his presence today. So the Father is revealing and sharing in here how this is going to play. So let's see. In Hebrew, this really plays a really, really cool part and how this is revealed because it shares a remes. In the Hebrew language, when it says he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats, it says, Umeet edat bene Israel yikach, it says, Shenei, it says, Seirei Isrim, it says. Now, what's interesting about this, it says, Umeet, it says, Edat bene Israel. So it's saying, take from the congregation of Israel. By the way, the word Edat is the word for congregation in Hebrew. But the word Edat also carries the understanding and Jewish thought of being a witness. So you are an Edat, essentially. Let me share something. It's very interesting. You are an Edat because the Ayin and the Dalit represents a witness. A witness to what? Let's, let's see how beautiful this Hebrew language is. The Edat, you are witness to the sign of the covenant, which is the Taf. In other words, what the Hebrew is revealing, folks, is that to be sons of Israel is the ones who actually are witness to the sign. What is the sign? In Hebrew in there, in that pictograph, it's actually a cross, believe it or not. To be a witness to the cross. To be a witness to the sign, the Tav. Yeshua said, I am the Aleph and I'm the Tav. See? So when we are witness to him, we are essentially the congregation of Israel. Essentially. So, but that's not what I really wanted to focus on. What I really wanted to focus on today is on the two goats. It says, take two male goats for a sin offering. 
Why two male goats? We're going to see in Hebrew, it says Shanae, and then it says Seri, uh, I'm sorry, Seirei Izrin. So let's look at that word in Hebrew. Shanae means two, okay? And then Seirei, which is talking about the goats, said, I want to share the gematria for this word. Because in the Hebrew language, each number has an equivalency or value. We see this very evident in the book of Revelation. Throughout all scripture, the numerical value for this and this and this. So the gematria for the two goats put together gives us a grand total of 1,077. That's a big number, by the way. Okay. Now, 1,077. Now, keep in mind that this is revealing the two goats that are going to be presented for an offering. In Hebrew, it means 1077 gives us this value right here. And it says, Ye chalchu begadai lahem ve'al levushi. Yafilu goral. It is in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful testimony what that scripture says right there. Because when he says, take the two goats for an offering, the value for that is Psalms twenty-two eighteen. I just read it to you in Hebrew. And Psalms twenty-two eighteen literally means, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Remember when Yeshua was on the cross? This is what he recited, Psalms 22. So the two goats... And the value when it says take the two goats in Hebrew gives it takes us to this psalm right here. Now it's interesting because the two goats it's pointing to the Mashiach. Why? Because it's giving us Psalms 22. And Psalms 22, 18 is a messianic prophecy, even among the Jewish people. So let's see this. When we talk about 20 Psalms 22, that's talking about dividing my garments, there's a connection between this. And what we learned last week, what is the connection? Last week, we learned about the two birds for the cleansing of the leper. You guys remember? Or you forgot already? And what did we learn? In Gematria, the word for Sifur, it is, this is Messiah. So what happened is that one bird will be slaughtered and the other bird will be taken from the blood of the one that was slaughtered and the bird was set free. Guess what we have with the goats in here? The same ritual. See, there's a connection. But what is the connection? Well, in the first one with the birds, it had to do with the cleansing of the leopard. So there's a connection between cleansing of the leopard and doing away with sin. In other words, what I'm suggesting here today to you is that in the future, folks, at the last trumpet, folks, we are going to be changed completely from one garment to another. And the offering that Yeshua provided for us will be significant of that of the bird for the cleansing of the leprosy. Because remember what I talked to you about last week? That we are lepers today. Because what is leprosy? You are decaying little by little. And, you know, we talked about this. You take a picture when you were 5, 10 years old, even 15 years old, and you take a picture now, you don't look the same. Oh, if you take a picture when you're 90 and a picture when you're 15, the pictures don't look the same. I mean, you really have to discern to say, is that really you? 
because your face changes, your body changes, your bone structure changes. Okay, why? Why? Why does it do that? Because it says that we are born in the image of the first Adam. And as we are born in the image of the first Adam, we are dying every single day. We are essentially struck with leprosy, decaying. See? So why the bird and why the goat? To cleanse for leprosy and to bring us to life again. This all has to do with the sacrifice of Yeshua and what he did for us. Amen? So look. In Psalms 22, it says that they have divided my garments, of course, and this connects with, of course, the cleansing of the leper, which is bringing us to, in here, Leviticus 16.8. It says, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, it says. Now, we understand that the two goats in Hebrew, by the way, we're not talking about here, oh, this is all traditions. No, we're just looking at this in here in the pure Hebrew. That's it. There is no traditions in here. There's no man's doctrine in here. We're just showing you in the plain view, in the Hebrew, what this means and where it's pointing. Completely being unbiased. And now it points us to a messianic prophecy. So now I want to share about the scapegoat. Because remember, for the bird, one will leave and the other one will be slaughtered. Now, with the goats, one is left. It goes too. So let's read. It says, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. We already know that that's a messianic prophecy. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat, it says. Now this gets very interesting. Let's see this in Hebrew. In Hebrew, this word for scapegoat is Azazel. Okay, now the word for Azazel in the Gematria, folks, is 115. 115. And by the way, when I present Gematria, I, I keep it in the Bible. So everything that I'm sharing you with Gematria it is a value that you can find in the Tanakh. Simply put, I don't go outside of the Tanakh. So the Gematria is 115. And this word in Hebrew, it is Vehafodecha. What is Vehafodecha? Let's look at this because it says that Azazel is essentially equated to Vehafodecha. And that word in Hebrew literally means and redeemed you. So now we have a connection with the scapegoat and being redeemed, essentially. Let's look at this. This word, and redeem you, which is the word vehafodecha, okay? We're going to find it right here in Deuteronomy 13.5. The same gematria value. And it says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and redeem you okay that word and redeem you it's the same word for azazel in other words what the mighty one of israel is suggesting in here or rather what i'm suggesting not him he just shows it redeem you from what from the house of slavery that's number one to seduce you from the way in which the lord your god commanded you to walk so that you shall purge the evil from among your people so it's saying that in, in, in this verse is talking about a false prophet who's trying to lead you astray. And God is saying, wait a minute, put the brakes on. Because you remember, I redeem you from the house of slavery. The goat that I have set outside. That is the scapegoat, Azazel. It's for the purpose of redeeming you from the house of bondage. There's a great drash in this family. I don't know if you're seeing it. But this scapegoat has to do with the redemption, the purpose of redemption, essentially. 
In other words, what we're yeah, mark marking down because we're recording. Just writing down. Uh, what we're doing in here is when it's talking about and redeem you, essentially, it is talking about redemption. The purpose of redemption is to deal or take away idolatry. Remember what is the verse in here is talking about when a false prophet tries to elude you into idolatry? God is saying, remember Azazel, the purpose of Azazel is so that you don't go and you're not enticed to go back to idolatry. This is what's so beautiful. Because why do I say this, family? Because what is the notion today? Well, Jesus came and he sacrificed himself so that, you know, my sins are taken away. Right? That's the common, that's the common understanding. And it's not a wrong one, by the way. But it's limited. Because the, the aspect of Jesus taking away your sin through Azazel has a meaning. The meaning of taking away the sin is so that you don't go back to sin. That's what Azazel represents. Don't return back to idolatry. Don't be lured back to idolatry. That's why in here he says, I redeem you. It's teaching us, wow, Azazel is the one goat that goes into the wilderness. Meaning the desire, the desire to want to return back to idolatry should be dead in us, essentially. That is the purpose of Azazel. Not to become a habitual sinner, essentially. And where do, we see, where do we see evidence of this? How about we turn to the New Testament for evidence of this? Because what I'm proposing in here is that Azazel is the one, according to Gimatri, by the way, is the one that takes away the desire to continue to habitually sin in idolatry. And look what Paul says in here. Romans chapter 8-2. Romans 8-2, Rav Shaul says, For the law of the Spirit of life and Messiah Yeshua has set you free. From the law of sin and death. That's Azazel. <laughs> see, a lot of times we don't see the connection because it's in the Hebrew. But what Paul is presenting in here is the concept of the scapegoat. The scapegoat is teaching us that we have been free from the desire to submit to sin and death. From the spirit. And that's what's so beautiful about this whole thing. See, when we read that verse, we're like, okay, what in God's name is he talking? But when we understand... Azazel, through the Jewish context, through the Hebrew, now this makes sense. Because remember, every argument that Paul presented was all based on the Tanakh. Everything. He didn't come up with anything of his own. He was just presenting the knowledge in Scripture to try to prove a point like most of us should be doing regardless. So in here, what we have is that he has been set free. What does Deuteronomy 13 says? That I have redeemed you. The false prophet is trying to lure you. But remember, I have redeemed you. This is what he's presenting in here, essentially in Romans chapter 82. Now, I want to share the Midrash Rabbah for just extra support so we can see what exactly is was in the, in the understanding within the first, second, third, up to the fourth century in Israel. And look what the Midrash Rabbah says. The sons of Aaron die for having done four sinful things, they say. And death is written in connection with all of them. They died because they had drunk wine before entering the tabernacle. That's number one, they say. Okay? Uh, and death is written in that context at a state. Do not drink intoxicating wine when you come into the tent. Now, that's written. It says it in the word of God. Then, that you not die. That's what we find in above 10.9. Then they died because they were lacking priestly vestments, they say. So, two things so far. Drinking on the job and not coming in with the proper uniform. 
So I guess if, like a bell illustration, if you have a job that requires a uniform, like a cop, fireman, janitor, chef, you show up drunk and you don't show up in your uniform, more than likely you'll get fired. True. I mean, imagine showing up to be a cop and you don't put your uniform on and you're drunk on top of that. So it says in here, and they died because they were lacking priestly vestments, and the death is written in the context, for it states, the vestments shall be on Aaron and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting, and when they approach the altar to serve holiness, it says. Then, and they should not bear a sin and die, Exodus 28, 43. And which vestments is, uh, specifically were Nadab and Abihu lacking? The robe, it says. Specifically, in connection which death is written separately, as it says, the robe must be on Aaron to minister so that he not die. In verse 35. And they died because they entered the tabernacle without first performing the washing of the hands and the feet. That is true. In the, in the Torah, it says that before they were to enter into, not to forget about the Holy of Holies, to enter into the holy place, you needed to wash your feet, do a mikvah, essentially, of the hand and the feet, representation of your deeds and your walk, to be clean. So now it says in here, in connection with which death is written, it states, they shall wash their hands and feet and not die. 3021. And it is written further, whenever they come to the tenth of meaning, they shall wash water with water and not die. So Nehemiah and Mahu was struck due to drinking while serving, not wearing the proper garments, not washing the hands and feet prior to the service of the tabernacle, essentially. This is the far, thus so far with the Torah is essentially uh, revealing. So let's look at this because I believe there's a prophecy here. Again, the purpose of the Torah is so that we can glean so we know to learn from the mistakes of what they did. Isn't that what Corinthians says? Okay, these things become live for us, so an example, so that we learn what not to do, essentially, or rather what to do. So let's see this. And all of these right here, family, drinking while serving, not wearing proper garments, and not washing, we're going to see elements of this in the Tanakh They refer to outside of the priesthood. Meaning, it was not exclusive just to the priesthood, but this served as a model for the people as well in Israel. Because remember, who taught Israel? The priesthood. They were, they were the, the anointed ones in Israel. And if they needed uh, understanding of the word of God, they would go to the priest. And if they wanted to do sacrifices, by the way, they would have to come to the temple. So the temple was a place where people came to teach. Guess what? Most of Yeshua's teaching went done in the temple precincts, outside courtyards. That's what it says. He went to the courtyards and he was teaching. Very common in those days. Many rabbis were doing that. Even into today, if you go to Israel, you go to the Kotel. In the Kotel, you have a line of rabbis. If you ever go and you get an opportunity to go to Israel, it's amazing. When you go into the Kotel, you can go there at 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't matter what time of the day. And there's always groups of rabbis teaching with their disciples. Even today, we see that element. So let's see this. Let's start with drinking while serving. So concerning drinking alcohol while serving, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, New Testament. Go figure, right? What does it say? Wake up from your drunken. My English is not very good. Stupid or stupor? <laughs> Just joking. Stupor. So it says... 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, it says. For some have no knowledge of God and say this to your shame. So Corinthians in here is already alluding to drunkenness with your life. In other words, what I'm suggesting here today is that you can live a life of drunkenness and never pick up a bottle of wine. You know, there's the spiritual drunkenness, and then there's the physical drunkenness. What I'm addressing here today is the spiritual drunkenness. Because guess what, folks? If you never pick up a bottle of wine and never drink, but you live in a life of drunkenness, meaning spiritually speaking, you might as well go enjoy that 1828 bottle of wine. Because it's one and the same. It is a reflection of what is inside to the outside. So look, Revelation 18, 2 and 3. Here's another example. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a hunt for every unclean spirit, a hunt for every unclean bird, a hunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk... The wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. There it is. See, so there's this such thing. Here is where we see the connection that you are not to enter into the temple precincts while you're drunk. What does the temple represent? The presence of the God of Israel. In other words, what I'm suggesting here today to you is that if we're going to come before the presence of God, forget about whether you're wearing the right zitzits, forget about whether you got the right keep on, forget about whether you are keeping the Sabbath according to your understanding, your heart and your spirit better be sober above all. That's number one. It starts with that. You follow. The second thing in here, it says, And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Concerning the priestly gar- uh, vestments, because remember, they were struck because of not wearing the priestly garments. So we already dressed drinking, and we see a connection that the Tanakh is giving us, and the Brihadasha is giving us in, uh, concerning our lives and how we conduct ourselves every day. But what about the garments? Look what it says in the garments, Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, it says. Right? For he has what? Clothed me with the garments of salvation. Now, the prophet Yeshiahu is making a connection with the garments of the priest. What do you think Isaiah was thinking about when he talks about the garments of salvation? The priesthood. See, this is all drawn from the Torah. This is why it's so important to understand each aspect of the garments, by the way. There is a meaning for the sash. There's a meaning for the robe. There's a meaning for all these different things, by the way. I'm not going to get into that today, but we'll cover here in the near future. So it says, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest... Like a who? A priest. See, that's why if we don't understand the priesthood, we are never going to understand this walk. Because, you see, that's the issue there. We don't understand the priesthood because, well, we don't have a temple today. So who needs to learn the priesthood anyways? We're not Levites. Why do we need to learn it? You know what? Let's just skip the whole book. And let's just get to Deuteronomy or Numbers. 
See, but in here, guess what, folks? In Israel, they train kids at the age of five. Guess what book they start with? Leviticus. At the age of five, they're studying Vayikra. You would think Genesis, because it's the beginning of the Torah, right? No, Vayikra is the first start so that the kids can under, because they say the kids are pure. So that they can understand purity. That's the issue. And that's the connection there. So it says in here, so they can, he can be the bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Amen. Revelation 6.10 says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you would judge and avenge our blood to those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a what? White robe. Keep that in mind, please, because it says that in the future, prophetically speaking, you are going to be given a white robe. That white robe goes back to the what Nadab and Abihu did not wear, which is why they got struck when they came in before the presence of God. Now, we got to see evidence of that in the Brihad Shah here in a minute in Yeshua's teaching. So they were each given a white robe and uh, told uh, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Hazal says this: the robe atones for evil speech, which is slander. In Hebrew, it is called lashon hara. Folks, I'm going to submit something today to you. You would think that the number one killer for believers in Messiah. It's drinking, maybe, I don't know, uh, murder. No, the tongue. The tongue, slander, accusations, false accusations. This kills, folks. This is the things that God is completely up to here with. The evil speech and the false accusations. It's what's killing the body of Messiah Yeshua today. Look. It says in here, Rabbi Hanina explained, let something that emits sound through its bells atone for the sound in Sefarim 48b. And they're talking about the bells of the priests when they will walk in, they will have bells in the bottom. And the purpose for that was a process of atonement as well. I'm not going to get into all that today because, again, we'll be here a long time. Then you won't be happy with me. But we'll cover again someday in the future. Oh, Hashem. Matthew 22. Now, here's when Mashiach made the connection. Look what Mashiach said here. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in, in, in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had what? Nadab and Abihu enter into the Holy of Holies without the proper garments. What's happening in here? The bride supposed to be decked like a who? priest according to Yeshiyahu. so yeah the bridegroom so now what do we have in here we're in the bride too the that what we have uh, the bridegroom what we have in here is what the wedding garment this person who's in there doesn't have the proper attire and what happens to this person and he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, what happened to Nadab and Abihu? You see, this is a repetition of Nadab and Abihu. If you know the Torah, you will know this. If you know the Parashah, you will know this because they didn't have the proper garments. You see how this applies even into today, folks. 
how we approach the Lord, we need to be very, very careful. Now, concerning the washing of the hands and feet, this is the last one. What does it say? Psalms 24, 3 and 4. Look what it says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You know, it's a question that many today are asking. Who is going to be in heaven? Who is the ones that are going to be uh, uh, with the Lord, so to speak? And guess what? And Psalms 24 gives you the answer. Notice the answer. What does it say? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It doesn't say he who knows Hebrew the best. It doesn't say he who knows the Torah the best. It doesn't say he who is wearing the perfect zitziots. It doesn't say he who show up to Shabbat early than anybody else. Not that I'm discrediting these things, family. What I'm saying, I'm suggesting here today, is that the heart needs to match the outer deeds. So if you here at 8 o'clock, you're the first one in the synagogue, Baruch Hashem, may your heart be a revelation of you being here. If you are always going after to find out who you can help, may your heart, may that be a revelation of your heart. If you're putting on zizzes for your zeal, and essentially, I'm going to narrow the whole thing down. If you have a zeal for God that is uncomprehensible, let it be. Because it is a revelation of your heart. Because notice that the, the theme in here is, and by the way, this is not the only scripture that it says this. There's at least four scriptures in the Tanakh that advocate this. And by the way, not to count the ones in the New Testament. A clean heart, a pure heart, and clean hands, essentially. Amen. James 4.8, look what it says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay, why do I put James 4.8 in here? Because the theme in here is how do we draw to the God of Israel? What happened with Nadab and Abihu? They tried to draw near to God. By the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but in the Nadab and Abihu incident, there was a great rejoicing because that was the day the tabernacle had been inaugurated. So they went in there with joy. They went in there with, yes, we finally got a Beit Mikdash. You know, it's awesome. And they're all excited to do this. And they probably have a little bit too much because what happens when you get very happy? You tend to go a little overboard, right? What is God teaching us? Even in the moments where we rejoice, we can never compromise holiness. Because that was a day of joy. It says it. Hazard says that that was the day that the tabernacle had been inaugurated. So that's why they went in to present it. Amen. So it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Here we go again. We just read this in Psalm. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify what? Your levav in Hebrew, your heart, you double-minded people. Why does he say double-minded? See, this makes perfect sense. Because if you are presenting a facade... That is very holy, but inside you dead men's bones, you're double-minded. See? It, there needs to be an evidence of the spirit and the deeds, the ma'aseh in Hebrew. The ma'aseh has to match the levav in Hebrew. That is your heart. This is a very, very foundational teaching in Judaism. We don't do deeds unless it is prompted by the heart. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. That's not always the case. 
John 13, 3 and 5 says, Yeshua, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He said, laid aside his outer garments, laid, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Okay. What was, the, what was one of the prescriptions before you can enter into the holy place? Wash the feet. What do you think Yeshua was doing in here? Giving them an inauguration, essentially, so that they can enter into his presence, the presence of the Father. There's a lot, there's a lot happening in here that we may, may not know. A lot more than just washing feet. So he says in here, wipe them and with a towel, and he wrapped them around. So he's going to do. Now we're going to conclude with Kedoshim. I told you that I was going to be fast today. Kedoshim, this is the connection, because we just discussed dying to the flesh. Acharemot in Hebrew. What is Acharemot? After the death. Now we're going to understand, by the way, how do we die to the flesh? Well, we already cover all these things. To die to the flesh means that we die to our desires, number one. This is what the Torah is teaching us so far. And not only do we die to our desires, folks, but we circumcise the forcing in our heart. In other words, we clean our hands, our feet, and our heart and make sure that it's pure. This is now preparation. Notice how the order of things go here. Death of the flesh, meaning death of your nature, brings about kedoshim in Hebrew. Holiness. Now let's look at holiness. Kedoshim in here opens up with Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation. Who? All the congregation, right? Of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? Let's look at this in Hebrew, how it reads. In Hebrew, it says, David el kol edat. Here we go again. It says, kol edat. All the witnesses. All the witnesses of the covenant. Daf means covenant too, by the way. All the witnesses of the covenant. So it says, David el kol edat b'nei Israel. There says, ve'amartha alehem. And say alehem to them, kedoshim. By the way, that word kedoshim in there, I don't know if you notice, but is in plural. Because he wants all of us to be holy. He's not just saying the Levites are to be holy and the congregation of Israel is to be less holy. He said, I want all of you to be at the same level of holiness. By the way, that's the goal that Avino Macheno has for each and one of us, that we will all reach the level of holiness. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing vessels. Baruch Hashem. So it says in here, Alehem Kedoshim, and then it says, Tihyu Ki Kadosho. Tihyu. This is very interesting. Ki. And then it says, Ki. Where am I? Okay. Ki Kadosho. Now, what he's saying in here is, Tihyu, which is this word right here, is written in a future tense. And then Ki. And your translation, some of your translation has it kind of like watered down because key in the context how it is there literally means because. So it's saying, Tihyu means be holy, or rather what it's saying literally in Hebrew. Let me put it in here because I'm, I got to switch my brain from this way, this way, this way, this way. So it's saying, say to them, holiness, you will be because holy, Ani Yehovah, I am. 
In other words, the way that is written says, you will be holy because I am holy. In other words, what the Tanakh is teaching us is that it's not your deeds that's going to make you holy. He's saying, you will be holy for the fact that I am holy. Okay, what is that teaching us? When somebody tells you, why do you guys keep the Torah? Are you trying to earn salvation? What do we reply? We reply Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. We are holy because he said you will be holy because I am holy. By the way, the key is the key word, because. There's a reason. You are going to walk in holiness because the one that you serve is holy. Not because you're trying to earn salvation. You're already saved. But rather because he is holy and he is commanded. By the way, that's almost like a mitzvah. It's written in a mitzvah way. You will be holy. It's a commandment. You will be holy. Simply put. So it says in here, Because you will be holy. Let's look at this. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, get your minds ready for work. How many of you are ready for work, guys? Peter Kepha says, get your minds ready for work. What is Peter suggesting in here? Let's see. Keep yourselves under what? Control. That's part of being in work, by the way. And fix your hopes fully on the gift you will receive when Messiah, when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed. As people, now here's what it says it, as people who obey what? Obey God. That means that there is a sense of obligation and fulfilling of mitzvah that he's given us that we need to do. Notice that Peter's not suggesting a lawless doctrine, but rather Peter's suggesting here obey God essentially, right? But look at this. That is all part of getting your minds ready for work. See, when he says get your minds ready for work, he's saying keep your mind off of the things of this world and keep your eyes fixed in the spiritual things that I'm doing. For what? For the end of days. The haharit hayamim in Hebrew. The end of days is where he wants us to keep our minds focused because that's what's it's irrelevant. It's going to happen, right? The end days, I believe, are among us either way. So it says, as people who obey God, do not let yourself be shaped by the evil desires. And notice what he says. Don't let yourself be shaped by these evil desires you used to have when you were still ignorant. This is amazing, amazingly powerful, folks. But look what he continues saying in here. On the contrary, following the Holy One who called you, be, who called you, become holy yourself in what? In your entire way of life. Why am I presenting this scripture? Because Leviticus 19 says, you will be holy because I am holy. Peter is quoting that verse here. Therefore, there is a remes in here that we need to draw from. What is going through Kepha's mind when he wrote this? Leviticus 19.1. So now we're going to get a little bit more insight of what Leviticus 19.1 is all about. When he says, be holy, because I, I am holy. It means that you are to set your minds on the things that are holy. You are to focus on the things not of the world, but the things of God's work. You are to obey. These are all aspects that he's saying. I want you to obey, obey me, not just in the synagogue on Shabbat. I want you to obey me outside of the synagogue on Shabbat. Because it says your entire life 
wait a minute, let's talk about this for a minute. What do you mean your entire life? Well, we could be here for months talking about this. But when he says your entire life, you have to look at the Torah. The Torah deals with every aspect of our lives. It deals in how we deal with one another. We just covered last week a very personal parasha dealing with women and their nida status. Right? It's very personal. That's an aspect of every way of your life. It deals with money. How do we treat each other with money? How do we treat each other when we give work to one another? I mean, it goes on and on. In other words, Peter is suggesting in here, the Leviticus 19.1, when he says you will be holy, it's not a religious. He doesn't want you to be religious. He wants your life to be a way of life that is conducive to holiness. Because you could be religious. He's not interested in religion. He's interested in a way of life. The Torah in itself is a way of life. Since the Tanakh says, you are to be holy because I'm holy. See, that's what we just cover in this parasha. Baruch Hashem. Also, if you are addressing as father, the one who judges impartially according to each person's actions, you should live out your temporary stay on earth in fear. You should be aware that the ransom paid to free you, in other words, the death of Yeshua. Remember, we just talk about the goat. That has to do with what? The redemption, according to the Gematria, right? And this redemption has to do with the desire to want to commit idolatry. Should no longer be there, right? So now he says in here, you should be aware that the ransom paid to free you from worthless way of life, which your fathers passed on to you, did not consist of anything perishable like silver and gold. Essentially saying that he's reminding the people that what Yeshua did on the cross is not a license to sin but rather a license to live a life of holiness in every aspect of our lives. Look, on the contrary, it was costly, bloody sacrificial death of the Messiah as the lamb without defect and spot. And we thank him for that because he has given his life. Leviticus 19.31 says, do not turn to mediums. Now here's the outcome. He says that you die to your flesh, right? We're in agreement with that. And now comes Kedoshim. Now he's revealing what Kedoshim means means Kedoshim is not just limited to Saturday, Shabbat. And it's not limited to just when you do gatherings. Kedoshim is something outside of the Shabbat, actually, right? But now, because we're outside of the Shabbat, right, there's no accountability because we're over there in our houses, and it's not like we got all of us living together, so we can't be accountable 24-7, I suppose. That's why he says now that you're outside of the Shul. Now I want you to understand the first thing of Kedoshim, the first order of Kedoshim is... Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourself unclean with them, it says. This is very, very interesting because it says in here to not to make yourself unclean with them. And I want to here revert into the Hebrew so we can understand this a little bit better. And in the Hebrew says, El tifu, el ha o vot, ve'el ha yidayonim, it says in Hebrew. Very interesting choice of words in here in Hebrew. And I first of all want to start with understanding the first thing that he says. He opens up by saying, El tifu. Look at the language in here in Hebrew. El tifu says do not. But when it says tifu, again, the language in here is all in future tense. In other words, he's saying you will not. Literally in Hebrew. You will not. El tifu, el, and then it says ha ovo. 
Now, what's interesting about this word of vote in Hebrew is that this is the word for a necromancer, essentially. Now, what's interesting is that it has a definite article in Hebrew. The ha is right here. Ha of vote. Now, what's interesting is that you see the aleph. It has a, a dot in the top. I don't know if you guys can spot it, but that's the, that one that looks, I don't know if you know Hebrew, but the aleph there has a little dot in the top. Okay, that in Hebrew is known as the cholam. In the, in the Hebrew language, it's called a cholam because it's an implied vav in there. So you have a, a, an implied vav, but the vav is missing. Now check this out, family. Because the vav is missing, what you get is the root word for avot. You have the first two letters, the aleph and the bait, which is av, which is father. In other words, avot, which is talking about necromancers, reveals something very interesting. Because when you have the vav in there, the cholam, the vav unites the bait and the aleph together. In other words, the, uh, the aleph and the bait become echad, one. But because the vav is missing, now the bait in Hebrew represents duality, meaning two houses, three, heaven and earth. It represents many houses. A house in Hebrew, bait, represents also the authority that you submit to. The teachings, for instance, when Avinu Abraham was asked to leave his father's house, he was asked to leave the teachings of his fathers. We say this, right? So in here, the, uh, the Aleph and the Vaid, it has a Cholam and it's missing the Vav, which, by the way, connects it. So it's saying that do not, under any circumstances, have more than one authority. See, because the Vav unites the Aleph and the Bait as one house. But when you take the Cholam, when you take the Vav out, by the way, the Vav also is a representation of a man who binds things together. So when you remove this man, Yeshua, I believe, now you have all these different houses. When we have all these different houses, we're submitting to different teachings. When we submit it to different teachings, it gives the opportunity for necromancy. So let's see this. Let me share something with you. And in here, this word in here in Gematria for ha ovot, okay? Without the without the vav, we have a cholam. Remember in there, and it's four hundred and eight. And this word for four hundred and eight represents or rather it means nechashim in hebrew nechashim and nechashim literally means enchantments the houses think about this family because if the house is not united and we're going to different houses what you get is confusion and enchantment the bible makes the illusion with this i'm going to share something with you that word for nechashim in there is the same word for the serpent the serpent whisper to Hava, Eve, and Adam. The, the whispering was seduction, essentially. Because it was not bound. It was not one house anymore. Look, where do we find this word in Nachashim in Hebrew? In what scripture in the Tanakh we find it? It is in Numbers chapter 24, 1, for instance. It says, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel... 
He did not go as other times to seek omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. Balaam, by the way, Balaam was seeking God through the means of enchantments and omens. In other words, the channel that he was using, by the way, it stands true that the Tanakh said that God did speak to him. We can't deny that one. And he spoke to God. And God even spoke to him through a donkey. Balaam, and we have taught this in the past, Balaam was not known as an enchanter, by the way. Balaam was known as a man of God. He's a false prophet. But he was known as a man of God because when you look at the lineage of Balaam, Balaam tracks back to Abraham. So he would have known Abraham. He would have believed, people would have believed that he had ties to Abraham. So they would have believed that he was a man of God. That's why it says when the king hired him, says, we know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Okay, where do we read that? In the Tanakh. Genesis chapter 12, what Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. No, we're cursed. Those who curse you. Why do you think the king told them, I know that whatever you bless is blessed, whatever you curse is Because it goes back to Abraham. You see? So he was known as a man of God. You see, today we're reading it and we're like, oh, he was an enchanter. He was a, 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 a false prophet. Yes, he was. But that's not the way that he was perceived back then. He was perceived as a man of God. Now, let me ask you something, family. How many people today say, wow, what a wonderful man of God, and we know that that is just pure baloney? I mean, all you have to do is turn to TBN. You know, you got all your enchanters right there. You know, who say they love God, they do this, they perform all these miracles, but they are completely, completely nullifying the covenant of God. They're still known as men of God. Nobody ever dare say these are idolaters no these are men of god in the eyes of the world these are men of god these are evangelical men of god but do they walk in the covenant of hashem do they fear his name do they do the proper channels of how god has instructed his Torah and how to do things no it was the same thing in here with balaam that's what i'm trying to propose in here so that you can understand that um this is an essential part of knowing why is it that they thought that he was a man of God. So we see that the evolving here has to do with the channels and how we approach God. What channel are we using to approach God? What I mean by channel, what method of worship are we coming before the creator? You realize that Nadab and Abihu were using a method of worship. Worship is not just dancing and singing. Worship is prayer, Bible study, everything. And your walk, your halakha in Hebrew. So all that is an aspect of worship. What method did in here this man use? Well, he used ha'avot, which is many, many, many. Many different teachings. Many different, um, uh, what do you call that? Ideologies. Many different houses. We need to come to the one house, essentially. Look. So it says in here, so it says, do not turn your face in the future. Turn to that. He's saying, don't do it in the future. And do not, then it says, in Hebrew. And what's interesting about this word, again, very, very amazing how the Bible uh, reveals this, because it's talking about in the future tense. Tebakshu in the Hebrew literally means do not in the future, do not under any circumstances in the future use a method of worship or prayer that is conducive to this back here. In other words, 
What Hashem is saying is, if it ain't written in my word, if it is not according to how I have it prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23, this is talking context aspect of worship. If you are not approaching me according to Leviticus 23, you are essentially falling into idolatry. Don't get creative, he's saying. Don't get, you know, Nadab and Abihu try to get creative. Honestly, they probably did. They, you know, we just want to do things that are good for God. I don't know anybody who actually maliciously wants to come against God. Usually they think they're doing good. Usually. And that was the case with Nadab and Abihu. They thought they were doing something great. God said, no, these are the parameters of holiness. Holiness doesn't bend. Holiness is holiness because it's perfect. And if you change it, it's no longer perfect. That's the problem. So we can't, under any circumstances, seek out this word, this word right here, el, I'm sorry, al, tebakshu, literally means to seek out in worship or in prayer. So it's saying, don't do it this way. But let's look at the word prior to this. Ha yit danuim. And it's the word yodea, right? And it means to know, to be wise. A prophet or a wizard, it means. Like magicians or a spirit of divination. It says a spirit of python. Do you know that the spirit of python is the same spirit that the uh, Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi, that's what she was using. And what will happen is Apollo would literally take over her. She will sit under the tree that's called the tree of Delphi. It's out in, in Asia Minor, the tree of Delphi. She will sit there and she will be possessed. Literally, it says that she will be possessed by Apollo. Apollo will take over her. She will go into a convulsion, and then all of a sudden, Apollo will speak through her. And then she will utter the, the meanings of all these different things that needed to be coded. So he is saying, essentially, don't do that. I don't care if it feels good. I'm sure it felt good for Delphi, by the way. He said, I don't care if it feels good. This is my proper way of worship, simply put. This is how I want you to approach me. So it means properly knowing, being wise, hence a prophet. We need to be careful. There's lots of things out there today, family. Lots of people with lots of knowledge out there today. And knowledge puffs up, as scripture says, when it's not accompanied with the right spirit. It can. Not, not that knowledge is bad, but it's when it's accompanied with the wrong spirit, it can be detrimental. So it's saying in here, be careful with these prophets who are going to come to you with all these smooth words. With lots of knowledge, but essentially they're going to lead you away from the path that I have designed for you. In other words, don't do any form of worship that resembles the nations. Now, notice what I said, worship. Because there's a lot of things that the nations do that we have to do. For instance, we have to get up and we have to go to work just like the nations. You know, we go to parks. We do things just like the nations. We pay taxes just like the nations. We build houses just like the nations. We own cars just like the nations. We're not talking about that. He is saying very specific in here. Worship. Don't come to me with all these other ways of worship. And you guys know which one I'm talking about that we celebrate today. That are contrary to his word. They have no foundation in his word. He's saying this is detestable before my eyes. This is what we need to be careful because we can have a Nadab and Abahu experience, essentially. Amen? So, 
Rabbi Ariel Kaplan says this. Of in Hebrew, this is a type of necromancy, often involving a human skull, Sahedrin 65b. It was used to communicate with the dead. Now, it's interesting. It was used to communicate with the dead, yet today we see a lot of that. You know, I hate to say it. Judaism is very guilty for this. Very, very guilty for this. You know, they got the cemeteries right in front in, in Israel by the Western Wall, and they're constantly going there trying to reach the dead. This is contrary to the Torah. You know, and, 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 and even today, I mean, how many times we see people who go to the grave to go talk to the death? This is necromancy. It's not good in the eyes of God. But yet we do it with the right intentions. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing the intentions. What I'm saying is that even your good intentions can be a profanity before the eyes of the creator. So if you're going to your cemetery to visit your loved one and you start talking in there, be careful, guys, because this is not the practices that we ought to do. Look, in many cases, it involves uh, ventriloquism in Greek, Septuagint. The medium makes a voice appear to come from uh, the under his arm. So, Hedron 65a, we find that in the Talmud. Or from the ground in Isaiah 29.4. The methods can also involve meditation and incense drugs. Many in the ancient times will use drugs. By the way, if you get drunk... If you get drunk and you open that Bible, be careful, you might get struck. Don't be getting drunk and trying to be holy. Because that is male prostitution in the scriptures. Because getting drunk is another form of drugs. You're intoxicated. You're not sound mind at the end of the day. It's no different than taking any other drugs. I'm not saying you cannot drink. I'm saying being drunk. There's a difference. So if you're drunk, please don't talk Bible. Don't be talking. For you shouldn't even be drunk. But let's just say that you maybe sip a little bit too much. You need to just stop at that very moment and stop talking scripture with people because I've seen that get really ugly. Two people arguing about the Bible and they're both drunk. Do you know how, uh, how disgusting that is? Honestly. And that what you're doing is profaning the name of the God of Israel. So Pito is an old name for Delphi, by the way. And that's why we, see, we read about the article of Delphi in the book of Acts, by the way. So it is in the Bible. Oracles, which is Yedonim. We just talk about knowledge, having a whole lot of knowledge in Hebrew. They are described as chirping like a bird. Perhaps a form of glossolalia, one who seeks to open the mystical. We got to be very careful with this, folks. There's a whole lot of that, a whole lot of that. You know, we've seen people slain in the spirit and they are howling like wolves. Okay, this is, this is, this is borderline Delphi right here, guys. You know, and, and doing all these mystical things. We need to be careful that we're not operating in an unclean spirit. God is not interested in you opening the mystical. If he wants you to know the mystical, he'll share it with you. What does the scripture say? The secret things belong? Okay, why are you trying to uncover it? Because that's what the mystical tries to do. The mystical tries to uncover the spirit. Okay, the spirits belong to him. But what it belongs to us? What does the Bible say belongs to us? This Torah. That you may do it. If you're not satisfied with that, then perhaps maybe you need to check your heart. Because when he returns back, if he desires for you to know the mystical things, he'll reveal it to you guys. Personally, I could care less. Because what is the mystical going to do for me? I'm here in flesh. So it's not going to do anything for you. We need to learn the flesh because this is what we're in, the flesh right now. And how to walk, yes, in a spiritual way, but in the flesh at the same time.
So we need to start learning the things that he has revealed in his Torah. Look, perhaps a former glossolalia, one who seeks to open the mystical, one who seeks Gnostic experiences. The Gnostics were very, very, very prominent in the first century. Second, and even up to the fourth century. And I, I hate to say, but we see a lot of traces of Gnostics teachings today. All over, folks. And this is what we need to be careful for. And if you, if you want, I will, I will suggest you look into uh, Gnosticism. So we're going to conclude with this. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, 6 through 11 says, Now these things took place as prefigurative historic events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Now we opened up with this during this Torah portion today, right? And it's teaching us that we are not to seek these things as an example. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink, then got up and indulged in rivalry. What is it talking about out there? Okay, when they build the golden calf. And the golden calf, they call it who? yod heh vav -He. It wasn't called golden calf. It was called yod heh vav -He because they thought, they thought, again, it's always about what they think, that they were doing things for God. Got to be careful, folks. That's why he has given us instructions. Keep, as, this is my philosophy, stick to the map. He's giving you the map. Stick to the map. You cannot bargain with the God of Israel. If he has said, this is the way I want you to approach me, don't get creative. Now, if you want to get creative, there's ways to get creative. Pray more. You can do that. Fast more. You can do that. Worship him more. You can do that, but don't change the approach and how to approach him. There's ways to get creative. Do more of what you're doing. Do more sadaka. Do more good mitzvahs. Do more good for humanity. These are things that you can do extra if you want to get creative. But don't get creative in the approach because the approach is set, it's holy, and it cannot in any way, shape, or form be changed. Amen? So it says in here, continuing on in here, and let us not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did with consequence that 23,000 die in a single day. Now, you know, realize that this is talking about the Tanakh. And when it says that 23,000 fell one day, the Tanakh does not say that they were having sexual immorality with one another. 23,000, the ones that were worshiping the golden calf. This had to do with the worship of a false god, simply put. In other words, because a lot of people read this and say, well, I'm not, I'm not cheating on my wife. Or vice versa. I'm not cheating on my husband. That's not what it's saying. This had to do with the golden calf. 23,000 died because those are the ones that built the golden calf who were actually worshiping. So we need to be careful. In other words, what I'm suggesting here today is, folks, that if we deviate from the path that God has given us, you are known as an idolater. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be labeled as an idolater. I don't want nobody in this congregation to be labeled as an idolater. We want to stick to what he says and be holy. Be true to the covenant, essentially. Baruch Hashem. And then it says, and let us not put Messiah to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Notice what Paul said in here. I don't know if you're picking it up. He said, let us not test, uh, let us not put the Messiah to the test as some of them did. How is it that Messiah was put to the test back in the wilderness? I thought he started in Matthew. But Paul's saying in here that the Messiah was way back there. Ah, you see, this is awesome to pick up on it. Because the Mashiach was always in the wilderness with them, folks. Just like he's here with us today, he was there. And don't grumble. Oh, that's a big one. Don't grumble 
as some of them did, uh, did and were destroyed by the destroying angel. Like I said, folks, the biggest enemy that we have in the body is our tongue, Lashon Hara. Our grumbling against one another, our grumbling against what God has given us. Guess what, folks? John the Baptist said, no one can have anything unless God gives it. So if you don't have it, it's because God ain't giving it to you. So stop complaining. Be glad with what God is giving you. Capitalize on what God is giving you. If God is giving you one talent, don't bury it. Produce from that one talent, and then he'll give you two. Maybe. Maybe he'll keep you with one. And if he keeps you with one, we'll bow Hashem for that. We need to be a people that is humble, meek, folks. These things happen. We're going to conclude with this. These things happen to them as a prefigurative historical events that they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Aharit Hayamim. What is the Aharit Hayamim? The end days. So everything that was written in here, it was written for the purpose for the end days. Family, every Messianic believer, every Messianic rabbi will tell you we are living in the end days. There's no doubt about it. We are here already. It ain't the end yet, but we are in the end days. So we are within that parameter. So this, all the events that we're reading in the Torah, all the events that we're reading through the prophets are an example for us today. Why do I say that? Because there's no excuse. We can come to the Holy One and say, well, God, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. I gave you my word. I give you all the examples. I even gave you my prophet to tell you about all my examples. So my prayer today is that we will learn to die to ourselves, folks. What we learn for Aharei Mot Kodoshim is that we die to ourselves and we can learn how to live Kodoshim holiness. And that we can literally be a light into the world, folks. Let's look forward to every day doing Sadaka, every day doing Maaseh of good deeds to each and one of us. This is how Mashiach, by the way, this is how you usher the Messiah back. How do we usher him back? We usher him back when we move him here on earth. See, we have it so backwards, it's not even funny. Christianity has taught us that we're just waiting for the world to get more evil so Jesus can return. That's not true. Peter even says it. Second Peter says that we usher the Messiah in. When you change the world, when you start doing what is right, you move him to come. You prompt his heart to return. So I want to suggest that collectively together, let's do this so that he can come. We want him to return. How many of us want him to return? Then let's move him to return by doing good deeds, by loving one another, by not uh, harboring anger, by not gossiping, by not doing all these things that are contrary to the nature of God. Amen? And you know what's amazing about the half Torahs, for the most part, and the extra witnesses that God gives us in his word, is that they always testify to the message that Rabinu Moshe gave us through the Torah. And in this case in here, Ezekiel 22, it's revealing something that we actually touched up about this morning concerning the issues of the heart. Now, this is a, a big topic that we're going to be discussing probably for the next 10 years because it's that important. The issues of the heart is where you're going to be judged by. So me as a good steward... Whether you hate me or not, I don't care. I'm going to share and reveal with you right now because I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to do God's work, simply put. It's the issues of the heart that we need to deal and address with one another. 
because this is the matter of how you're going to be judged again. So on that day of judgment, Hashem is going to look at me and ask me that you address the issues within the congregation or were you tickling ears? All right. So since I'm going to look to the left and I'm going to look to the right, none of you are going to be there to support me. That's the headship of this leadership. I have to answer for myself. So here it is. We've been talking about, again, Leviticus and talking about the issues of cleaning and unclean. Because the purpose of all of it is so that you can discern between clean and unclean, between the holy and the common and profane. Amen. So what is the issue that Ezekiel is dealing with in here? Let's open up first of all, Ezekiel 22, verses 1, one through 3. Opens up immediately saying, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. One of the things that in here we're witnessing is that faithfully through all the ages and through every generation, Hashem is faithful to raise up prophets. He is faithful to raise up teachers, leaders who will lead the people and tell the people where they're going wrong. Well, essentially what I'm trying to suggest here today is that a true leader is not going to tickle your ear but rather tell you where you're going wrong. And yes, uplift you in the process because then, you know, you don't want also a spirit of condemnation. You know, we're not just here to whip you, but rather to show you the way and show you where the error is so that you can get back in the path because essentially this is a life here that is temporarily, right? But what is the issue that's happening in Ezekiel? What is the big and the grand scheme of everything? What is the problem in this time, in this era that's taking place, and why Ezekiel is being called? Well, let's continue here because it gets better. In verse 3 it says, And you shall say, Thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, it says, so that her time will come, and that makes idols contrary to her interests for defilement. And it's interesting that that very last one in there that I highlighted, if you notice in there, it's little lines underneath. It's because I want us to focus on that right there because it says that so that her time will come that makes idol. And in Hebrew, it says, Ve asta gilulimeses aleha le tamea. And what is gelulim? Well, we understand that the word in there, Gelulim, remember, Hebrew grammar 101, the Vav is never a Shoresh. The Vav is never a root in the Hebrew language. So what we got is if we take the Vav away from this, we got Gilil. And if we take this Yod and this Mem Sofit, we take it away because the Mem Sofit and the Yod indicates plural. So what you got left is Galal. And what is galal? Galal literally means like an excrement, like uh, poop. Good job, Rebecca. Better that you said it than me. Thank you for filling the blanks. <laughs> but it is. It is literally the, the word in itself is giving us an idea. Why is that it is that it's, it's considered excrement? Because it has given us an idea in how the creator feels about it. To give you an idea, sort of to speak. But look what it says. It says, Ve'asata gilulim, it says, Aleha. So you're building up for yourself. And by the way, the choice word in here is Ve'asa. What is Asa? To literally to fabricate 
to make something. So the idols, it's not just something that appears. You know, you remember when the golden calf, when Aaron explained to Moses, I just kind of threw it in, just showed up. Okay, they just don't show up. It's something that you build, right? You make it yourself. So here we have now, in this time, in this era, the nation of Israel, specifically Judah here, is building and making itself all these idols that in the eyes of God is essentially like Rebecca said. <laughs> right? And this is what we're looking at as a whole. And in doing that, they're becoming defiled. Okay, we have a testimony in here because when Rabinu Moshe went up to the mountain and the people built, in Hebrew, they built this golden calf according to their understanding, right? What did God, Hashem, God of Israel, said to Rabinu Moshe? He said, get down there. For the people who you have taken out of Egypt have what? Corrupted. Defiled themselves. You see? See, we see the evidence in here as a foundation in the, in the Torah. And now we see in the time of Ezekiel, we have a repetition, if you want to call it, of Mount Sinai. The people now have formulated all these idols. Now, let me ask you a question. Just for heaven's sake, right? As the, the, the rabbis say, if we're going to have an argument, let it be for the sake of heaven. So, Baruch Hashem, let it be for the sake of heaven right now. What do you think they came up with the idea of building all these idols? Yeah, and not just Egypt, but the surrounding nations that they were in. Not just Egypt. Egypt was at that point, but uh, specifically in here, Assyria, Canaan, the Jebusites. I mean, there's all kinds of, all kinds of different nations. Remember that in Deuteronomy, he said, I am taking you into a nation that is already occupied by people. So remember that? And you are going to a place where houses are already built for you. And vineyards are built for you. And all these things are already set for you. But all these people have control. Rather, they're there, they are taking control of the land that I'm giving you, by the way. So here's what I want you to do. He tells them, I don't want you to do what you did when you came out of Egypt. But I don't want you to do what you're going to do when you come into Canaan either. So I don't want you to do what you came out of. And when you get into the land, what you see them doing, I don't want you to do it either. What do you want us to do? None. I want you to do what is written in my word. You see? And that's the key in here. So what happens in here in Ezekiel is that at this point, the people have not kept the covenant of Hashem. Now, I want to turn into Milstein edition of the prophets to share a little bit of what Hazal has to say concerning this. And Hazal says there are several levels of ritual contamination, it says. A person can become tamay, that is, become unclean, essentially, by touching certain things. More serious is the contamination caused, now listen by this, by immoral relationships. So the Hazal says that the levels of Tameh, there's different levels for Tameh, you know, uh, as far as defilements. And it says that one of the worst ones in, in essence is that of sexual immorality. You know, because, well, it kind of makes sense when you really think about it. Because when you commit sexual immorality, both physical or in spiritual, what is it that you're doing essentially? You are breaking a covenant. Now, covenants in the Bible are very important. Covenants for God, the God of Israel, is extremely important. For some reason, he really takes us, he takes us very personal when we defile his covenant. 
So while for us a covenant is kind of like today means nothing, and honestly in this nation today, covenant means nothing today, for the God that we serve, covenants are very, very important. So why sexual morality has a higher level of, uh, of tame, contamination, is because I want you to think of this in the terms how uh, Apostle Paul said it. Okay? And, and here's the thing. If we are married, we are becoming what? One, essentially, right? So se uh, when we are divorced, when a person is divorced, and I'm speaking now in terms of heaven, heavenly language here, okay? Divorce is also attributed to death. What do we mean by that? When you divorce in a biblical sense, you are dead to that person. That person is dead to you. In other words, you're no longer abound to one another. So this is the reason why he says that if a man dies, the woman is free from sexual morality. There's no charges. See? So the, the idea is that by the separation, and that's why today there's a separation between God and his people. That separation happened because what? Our sexual morality. See, we don't have that oneness with him anymore. And it's equality to death. What's going to happen for those who don't enter into the kingdom of God? It says that they will be cut off and thrown into the? Right. Okay, but it says cut off. Okay, that's the key word. Cut off means divorce. It means complete sever of the relationship. So in here, this is what we see in it, that he's saying that the sexual immorality is one of the most serious ones because it's literally cutting you off from that person completely. Most serious of all is that caused by idolatry because it contaminates the soul, they say. Wow, think about that. Now, in Hebrew, the word for soul is neshama. And your neshama literally carries the mind, your reasoning, your heart, and your spirit. So it's essentially everything within you. So what does Yeshua said that out of the mouth, the heart speaks? It's a neshama. In Hebrew, you, that part of your neshama is your heart. So the, the, in, in, in Jewish thought, the heart is the seat of all emotions. That's why the heart is something that constantly needs to be examined. By the way, that's why you cannot be led by your heart because it will lead you astray. That's what Proverbs says, right? Okay, that's the seat of your emotions. So your emotions is tied into your flesh. When you make emotional decisions, you're making essentially fleshly decisions. So we need to make spiritual choices, not emotional choices. So what makes one tame? This is going to make perfect sense with you guys, I promise you. Maybe. This is going to make perfect sense. Why Yeshua said that the washing of the hands is not that big of a deal. And we're going to cover that in the Brich here in a minute. Because you see, inside is what we're looking at. This is the theme of this whole parashah today. is dealing with the inside of a human being. Your neshama. We are constantly need to be working on our neshama. Everybody say neshama. That's your soul. That is your thoughts, your, your everything. Everything that drives you inside is what we constantly need to be working on. So it says in here, because it contaminates the soul. Idolatry is the antithesis of holiness. Think about it. Idolatry is the antithesis for holiness. Because holiness is purification. Idolatry is tame, which is contamination. Make sense? So let's see in here. So those who are near, those who are far from you will mock you. You of ill repute, full of turmoil. And 
again, and here we see something very interesting. In Hebrew it says, Te me'at, te me'at Hashem, it says. Then it says, Rava hamem huma in Hebrew. So, wow, what an amazing part in here and how this reads in the scripture. Because in the English, it kind of is confusing. When it says, you of ill repute, full of turmoil, really doesn't give justification what it's saying. And Hebrew it says, Temeat Hashem Ravat. So essentially, Ha Memumma. Essentially, what it's saying is that you defile greatly the name by your actions and the things that you are doing you are essentially defiling and i'm going to put it in very good term in here that it will sound very good for you you are bringing the name of hashem you are taking it in vain by your actions this i mean guys this is huge because here he's charging the nation of israel for taking his name in vain now, many of us in here haven't, well, not here, not anymore, but, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you see God, you're taking his name in vain. That has nothing to do with taking his name in vain. Taking his name in vain is what's happening in here. Literally, it says it. They were committing idolatry, yet giving credit to his name for that. You know, I'm going to give you, <laughs> I'm going to be politically incorrect. Okay, it's like saying I'm going to celebrate a feast that has nothing to do with God, but call it God. You know, the reason for the season, for that matter. You are taking his name in vain because now you attributing his name to that feast. That's exactly what they were doing. Look, missed thing edition. So you don't think our Richard is going crazy now. I have my juice to back me up now. <laughs> but look, and honestly, look what it says. Midstain the prophet says this. You who were commanded to be what? Holy. He did command us. We read it this morning. By the way, Peter really reiterates that later in his letters, right? So it says you who were commanded to be holy are responsible for contaminating the title of being a holy people. That's why we need to be very, very careful when we say, when we start throwing the name God out there or Hashem or Yehovah or Yahweh, however you want to call him. At the end of the day, you need to represent what that name means. This is what essentially is being said in the Hebrew. Now, here's the thing. What is it when we end service today, which we're shortly going to be doing, when we end service today, how do we end service here for those who are here every Shabbat? How do we end service here? What is the last blessing of the day? The Aaronic blessing, right? And what does the Aaronic blessing entail? I will put my name upon you. You carry now that name. I.e., you carry now the responsibility of that name. See, it's not just a name, folks. It's a name that carries a weight and a meaning. So if we're going to be calling ourselves the people of God, the God of Israel, specifically, and we're going to be telling the world that we are Torah observant people, right? That we don't keep Sunday because that's pagan, right? I ain't got no problem with that. Represent what you're talking, though. Don't say Sunday is pagan 
and then turn around and be committing paganism yourself. Because that's hypocrisy. That's worse than paganism, by the way, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So let's not be hypocrites. If we are calling upon the name, let's walk the name. Let's be the name. And that means that if we carry the name, now you may not like me after this, but that's okay. If you carry the name, you have a responsibility to treat each other holy. Amen. Yeah. That's a kind of hard one to do, though, right? Because we really don't like each other. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, we love each other here. We don't have a problem here, though. But in reality, this is a problem uh, worldwide, corporately. Most people can't stand believers. Believers can't stand believers. As a matter of fact, believers get along with people who don't even believe in God better than people who believe in God. Now, how does that happen? Mm. You see, we're misrepresenting the name at that point. Little do we know it. Even though you show up for Shabbat, even though you don't eat pork, even though you wear your ziziots, you already you're misrepresenting the name because you cannot even get along with one another. Proof of thought. You know, if you learn anything today that I have spoken, can you take that with you at least? Take that one with you. Marinate on that one, okay? And get back with me on that one. So this is the idea. We need to be able to do this. Look, Exodus 27 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do you know that that Hebrew word there, when it says to take it out in vain, it literally means to misrep misrepresent my name. We need to be careful. How are we representing the God of Israel? For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Well, isn't that what we're witnessing right here in the, in the, in the uh, historical event of the book of Ezekiel right now? So it continues on 22.9. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood, it says. And in you, they have eaten at the mountain shrines, it says. In your midst, they have committed acts of lewdness. <clears throat> you know, I, when I read that, I was a little puzzled when I was reading it because it didn't quite make sense. So, you know, this is why it's always good to go back and see what some of the other sages have written to, to kind of get a glean of what's really happening in here. And you'll be surprised that this is going to make a whole lot of sense now. When it says, slanders men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. <clears throat> Midstein carries this beautifully. Look what he says. Gossipers, now listen to this. Gossipers told powerful people that powerless people were criticizing them. Kind of like a tailbearer. So you got a high power. It's like a snitch, if you want to call it. You got a high power, and we're amongst the little ones in here. And now I'm going to go ahead and tell the high power listen, you know what? Mark did this and this and this and this, and he's talking bad about you. You ought to do something with him. You see? And now the powerful one is going to come against Mark, and it's going to be on my account because I snitched him out. By the way, this actually happened in Egypt. In Egypt, they actually had Hebrew spies for the Egyptians. How many of you actually knew that? Okay, that's what this is. You see, nothing changes, folks. Everything is just cyclical. And, you know, and we, I mean, I hate to say it, but even into today, with this whole thing of the coronavirus, we're seeing that. How many people are snitching on each other's people out there in the country, in other states? They're snitching each other. Guess there's three people in the house. 
And they're not six feet apart. I saw it. Guys, this is slanderous. This is not good. And yet, ever since this coronavirus, that's all we see. I mean, it's crazy. You go into the high power to snitch out on people for no, for no good reason, essentially. Or you want to call it justification because you're trying to save the world. Whatever. You know, if you want to save the world, then you need to become a hermit. Stay in your house and don't move. And everything needs to shut down. That's really the cure for it at the end of the day in the flesh. Because if you're going to contaminate, you know, how can you say to people, well, don't go out or only stay six feet apart. But yet you can go to Walmart with your nasty hands and touch all the produce. And like, that's not going to give it to me. Right? Really? I mean, come on. I mean, I wasn't always the smartest in school, but I guess you cannot buy common sense, can't you, in college? So here's the thing, folks. It says it in here that the gossipers told the powerful people that powerless people were criticizing them, thus instigating the victims of the gossip to kill their supposed critics. Tailbearing is more serious than malicious gossip because it is meant to create hatred. Those are some words of wisdom, guys. Take that to your heart. Words of wisdom. The purpose of tailbearing is only one purpose. You're trying to create hatred. And can we all agree that it does at the end of the day? It creates resentment, which leads to anger, which leads to hatred. You see? So the goal, uh, essentially, it's communicated through this in here. So... By saying that tailbearing leads to murder, our verse indicates the severity of the sin that one who bears tales about his fellow transgresses a very serious sin that leads to bloodshed. And this is part of the reason that we need to, honestly, folks, in light of what coronavirus, what I have witnessed and what I have read and what I have seen. Wow, we've seen this story of Ezekiel alive today. We don't even have to imagine it. We're seeing it today. Pastors being arrested because somebody go ahead and snitched them and say, this pastor is doing a gathering. Little do you know the sin that you have accumulated and the wrath that you're accumulating yourself for the latter days. We need to be careful. We need to be very, very careful. So I told you it was going to be a short teaching. So I'm going to conclude with this today. I'm going to conclude with this. Ezekiel twenty-two twelve says, in you, they have taken bribes to shed blood, it says. This is very, very important. So it says, in you, they have taken bribes to shed blood. You have taken interests and profits. You have injured your neighbor for gain by oppression. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. What do you think this means? <laughs> means what it means up to me. It's very, very simple. But let's look at this in Hebrew. When it says you have taken bribes to shed blood. In Hebrew it says. Shochad lachu bach. I'm sorry. Lachu bach. So it says shochad lachu bach. First of all, shochad. Literally means it's translated as a bribe. There's a reason for that. But the word shochad literally means a gift. So essentially, what it's saying that you have taken a gift, shochat, shochat lachut, take bach for yourself. You have taken gifts for yourself. What does that mean? You are taking, well, yeah, bribery in the context is bribery, but in reality, you are seeking to save your own life. 
You see this? You are doing anything to better yourself on the account of your neighbor's oppression. You see? We need to continue digging. See, you have to continue digging. Continue digging because there's more. You are stepping over the little man to get ahead. But we don't witness any of that here in America, do we? Never, ever do we witness that in here. So it says... Shochat lachu bach. Then it says le ma'an shefachdam. It says, and what is this le ma'an shefachdam? Le ma'an is very interesting. You're not going to find it in your concordance, but it literally means in order that, essentially. So when it says le ma'an, it's like in order that. In other words, to busy yourself with, to keep yourself occupied with. For the sake of, if you want to call it. So in order that, or for the sake of, you're keeping yourself busy, meaning you're seeking to save your own life, and you're keeping yourself busy trying to better yourself, and you don't care about anybody around you. You're getting the mental picture here. This is why the Hebrew is so important. So lema'an is for the sake of, and to keep yourself uh, busy with, you are what? It says in here, shefach dam. What is shefach? Shefach literally is the opening of a well, to be exact. The opening of the well is where all the water comes out. That's why it says shedding blood. Why? Because what happens when you shed blood? It gushes out, right? Okay, so the word in here in Hebrew, shefach dam, dam is what? Yes, shedding blood, the well that's coming out. You're gushing blood for the sake of bettering yourself, essentially. Then it says, you shed blood for what purpose? It says, Neshech ve tarvit, it says. What is Neshech? Neshech is what we know as interest. You're taking interest. This is talking about the elite and the powerful who are making profits of the ones who can barely eat a piece of bread a day. Do you think this country is going to be charged for that? Absolutely. You see? And then it says uh, interest in vetarvit. What is tarvit? Now it's interesting because that word tarvit is from the Hebrew word revit. And revit literally means a prophet. But interest is not, you know, it, the whole aspect of interest is that they will collect interest. So they will make a profit on the interest, but then they will charge a fee. On top of the interest. So that is what that is what the word revit means. It's making an extra profit already of a profit, so to speak. But we don't know anything about that, do we? So this is kind of like what we're talking in here. This is the kind of issues that were taking place. Then it goes on to say, lakach, um, which is to take. And then it says, vatseti. Wow. Then it says, Re'ayich ba'osech. So let's look at this. And it says, when it talks about uh, this word right here, ba'osech, it is talking about the oppression. So it's literally squeezing. And the mental picture, that is uh, a python squeezing on a person. So that kind of gives you an idea has anybody been choked out here or close to choked out by a python before? Okay. 
<laughs> but in, in reality, it means to oppress, but it's also to contend. So it's contending with somebody. It's slandering somebody. So even the word, in this word, the, the Tanakh is revealing that when you are actually slandering somebody, you are oppressing somebody. Now that should take it to a whole different level. That when you start speaking La Shonhara, you're actually oppressing somebody as well. Not a good thing at all. So this word in here, uh, va, and it says vate, va sevi. This is from the word batsa. Now, if you notice in here in Hebrew, well, maybe you won't, but the language in here is referring to, again, future. Everything, just about every word in the Bible, FYI, is in a future tense. Because the word is prophetic for the future. So for those who say, well, that's back in the Bible days. It doesn't apply to me. They're going to have to do a lot of explaining. Lucy, you got too much explaining to do, right? So what is the word basa? It means to be accomplished, something uh, compromising. You are compromising for the sake of greed. And all honestly, seva literally means somebody who's very greedy. But a person that is willing to compromise for the sake of greed. Let me give you an example. How many times we have forsaken this holy Sabbath because we want to make money? Okay? But none of us are guilty of that in here. But my point being is that this is what it means. It means you are compromising what God says in order to get ahead financially. So the Bible labels that. And by the way, it's written in a future, meaning that this will happen in the future again. So it's essentially gain by cutting off. That's why the Bible translated as unjust gain. Do you know that unjust gain can be as simple as violating God's word in order to make money? Let me give you an example. Something very similar and very simple as, you know what, guys? I love the Sabbath. Sabbath's good. But, man, I got a $1,000 job that I got to do and I got to feed my family. We ever heard that before? Or people saying I have to do it because my family has to eat? Do you know that the Bible labels that as unjust gain right off the bat? Because you're compromising. That's what this word in here is. It is batsa. It is talking about compromising for the sake of gain. Unjust gain. But you know, when we think of unjust gain, what do we think? Murder. Right? Shooting somebody for the, you know, for a bag of money or whatever. But it's not just that. It's just something as simple also as compromising his word for the sake of that. So then he goes on to say it in here. Because you're doing this, ve. Oti, then it says shahat, shahat. What is the word shahat? You have forgotten. Shahat literally means to forget. Neum, Adonai Yehovah. What is neum? Neum is to utter, to declare. And that word utter, neum, is speaking in a prophetic tense. In other words, Hashem is saying, I'm going to prophesy against you for the evil that you're doing, essentially. Amen. Are you guys still with me or no? Milstead Edition says, instead of trusting in Hashem, the corrupt kings and leaders of Judah forgot about him, they say. Instead of they wish, instead they wish to bribe Egypt and Assyria to become their allies to protect them against Nebuchadnezzar. Wow, folks. You know what? That is a vivid explanation today 
because today, instead of, well, by the way, we are going to be hitting real soon, real soon, a depression, you know, but right now the issue is that we're dealing with a, with a disease. And what do you think the nation as a whole is doing with this disease? They're trusting in the words of men instead of turning around and saying we need to repent from the sins that we have committed in abomination and literally do a teshuvah nationwide. Instead, what we're doing is let's keep six feet apart because that's going to save us. You know, I expect that from the world. I don't expect that from believers. Honestly, really, are you kidding me? So the six feet is going to save us, right? And maybe going getting vaccination, yeah, it's a good thing, right? Inserting me all the pork and enzymes that those things have. But God forbid if we get on our knees and repent. Oh, no, we can't do that. Because we haven't done anything wrong. As the proverb says, that's what the harlot says. We have eaten, we wash our hands, we, we haven't done anything wrong. This is the issue, family. We need to wake up. Wake up. Because next is the famine. And when the famine comes, what kind of counsel are we going to turn to? What kind of counsel are we going to receive? Who are we going to put our trust in? Don't tell me that I trust in God when you're listening to everything that everybody says. You're not trusting in God. You're trusting in the gods of the world. I mean, unbelievable. Look. In order to finance this misconceived diplomacy, they extorted money from the who? Populists to enrich the idol-worshipping nations that in the end betray them anyway. How much money we owe to China, guys? How much money we owe to everybody? Because we continue and we continue and we continue borrowing. Don't you see that this is exactly what Israel did? And the very people that they were borrowing from, those are the very people that turn on them. Because they refuse to repent. You see, we continue pulling from what we don't have. But we won't turn around as a nation and say, you know what? We have done wrong. You know, again, folks, I can understand that from the world. I can even understand that from religious groups out there that don't hold to the covenant. But it really bothers me who people who are here, again, he would go back to the, what we talked about earlier. Don't use my name in vanity. You are desecrating the name of the God of Israel when we make these decisions. Because you're essentially telling people that God is not enough. Well, I'm not saying that. Yes, you are. Because if I'm a stander and I don't believe in God and I see you making those decisions and you boasting in this God, then my understanding is that this God is not good enough. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. It's time to awaken, folks. I tell you, I wasn't going to win popularity today. It's time to awaken. And we're heading in that direction. Because all these nations that we have borrowed from, those are the ones that are going to come against us, guys. You see? And make us slaves. Exactly. Who said make us slaves? There you go. Good job. Make us slaves. Exactly. Exactly what it's going to be. Exactly what it's going to be. And by the way, this is not a thus says the Lord. I don't have to say it because his own word already says it. I'm just copying what his word says. This is nothing inspired for me. I'm just reading the inspiration itself. 
This is a summary of all the above sins that they were dealing with back then. You see, this is why it's so important to understand these Torah portions, how they come together and how they relate to us here today. Leviticus chapter 16 all the way through 20. Little did you know that there's so much connection in what's happening with the realities of life here today. But because we cannot discern the common and the holy, right? And we can make discernments. This is the reason why we're not making sound decisions. You can only make a sound decision when you have the ability to discern what's right and what's wrong. The Torah teaches us that. Isaiah 31 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt. <laughs> Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Isn't that human nature? When we are in need, we turn around and we look at the rich and the shameless for their help, right? Because in our eyes, they have the power, in our eyes, they look mighty. We make fleshly, but why we make fleshly decisions? Because we are not discerning the common and the holy, the profane, and the things that are ritually clean. See, there's no discernment. Our mechanism is completely shut because we're not putting it to practice. That's why Vayikra is so important. It teaches, it trains our mind to make these discernments, folks. That's the reason why God gave us uh, Leviticus chapter 11, to discern between clean food and unclean food so that we can make discernment for life. It looks kosher. Ooh, wait a minute, but it doesn't chew the cut. The pig, right? It's got the split hooves. It looks the part, but it's not. This is why some people may ask, well, why you guys don't eat pork? Because God is training us. Not only that he said that that's not food, but he's training us uh, to look at things in the natural world so we can see through the spiritual eyes what is kosher and what is not kosher out there. If we're not training for that, folks, we're going to fall for everything. I mean, there's already talk of mandatory vaccination out there. I don't know who is crazy enough to even do that. Why would you want to do that? And they even talking about monitoring this through technology. Hello. Bill Gates. Oh, let's turn to Bill Gates. He's such a great humanitarian. Yeah, he also hates God. Okay, we, we're relying on Egypt then. Relying on Assyria for help. But they, look what he says. Because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel. No, seek the Lord. Our duty, our job is to seek the Holy One always. Folks, because he created the heavens and the earth. And there's not a single disease that man can formulate out there that God doesn't have control of. You know, whether Bill Gates created the disease, it doesn't matter. It is irrelevant. What can men do that God has no control of? So that is your half Torah for today. Amen. And today, finalizing, and this is going to be really short and sweet, folks, because Yeshua has done the job already for us. Yeshua has done the interpretation for us already. I'm just going to read what he said, and it elaborates everything that we talked about this morning, even up to this point in the book of Ezekiel. And it says in Matthew chapter 15, 10 through 20, then he called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand this. What makes a person unclean is not what goes out of his, uh, what makes a person 
unclean, it's not what goes into his mouth, rather what comes out of his mouth. And understanding what Yeshua is saying in here is mastermind to understand the Torah. Because, again, we're dealing with issues in here, and many people take this scripture here as a means of anti-Semitic, with the anti-Semitic spirit. And we shouldn't do that. Yeshua here is not addressing so much the issues that are in the Torah as it is written by Moses, but he's dealing with the issues of the oral law that was instituted by the Pharisees, and actually not the Pharisees, prior to the Pharisees, what they called the rabbis of old. Now, the issue in here is the washing of the hands, right? So he says in here that essentially, kind of like what we talked about this morning, the addressing in Leviticus chapter 16, I'm sorry, uh, 20, deals with the issues of the matter of the heart. You guys remember, and I told you that we're going to even talk about this today, and Yeshua is addressing again the same issue. In other words, don't come doing all the rituals outside, and you can do them perfect, but if inside you are polluted, you are considered tameh in Hebrew, meaning you are unclean, simply put. Even though you're doing all these rituals perfect. Aaron's son were of the lineage of Aaron, and they thought they had rights to do whatever they wanted. Doesn't work that way, folks. There's still order in the camp of God. And the one first issue that we're dealing in here is the matters of the heart. Amen? So he said, rather, what comes out of the mouth is what makes a person unclean. Why? Because what comes out of the mouth? The neshama. Guys, remember, we talked about in Ezekiel. The neshama. It is the thoughts, the heart, which is the seat of all your emotion, your spirit. All these things is what's going to make you unclean, essentially. Now, is there such thing as unclean in the flesh? Yes. For the purposes of temple worship, if they touch a corpse, they couldn't come into the temple, even if their heart was clean. See, it's, it's really both one and the same. They they're both carry the same weight because in the flesh, they couldn't enter into the presence of God if there was death in them. Actually, that reveals something beautiful. That reveals the need of our Messiah. Because even if we're completely clean inside, let's just say that we're completely clean inside, we still have death in our flesh. Remember? We're leopards. Guys, remember, we're still decaying. We're dying. Okay, death does not exist in the camp of God. So in that aspect, that was understood. The rabbis understood, well, if you touch something unclean, you, you know, it, it becomes unclean. Everything else you eat, and that is true in the fleshly matter. But in here, Yeshua is taking this to another remes level in Hebrew which is a deeper layer of the Bible. And now he's saying, hey, wait a minute, guys. I understand that in Moses wrote this, and I'm not contradicting what Moses wrote, but understand that for eternal life, you can still be clean in the flesh, but inside you could be dead man's bone, which he addressed that to the Pharisees, right? So now he goes on to saying in here, Kepha said to him, explain the parable to us. He said, don't you understand that even now, don't you see that anything that enters through the, uh, enters the mouth goes into the stomach and passes out into the latrine. But what comes out of your mouth is actually coming from your heart. And that is what makes a person unclean. For out of the heart comes out wicked thoughts, murder, adultery, and other kinds of sexual morality, theft, lies, slanders. These are what makes a person unclean. But eating without doing netilat yadaim does not make a person unclean. What is netilat yadaim? This is the blessing that you're supposed to do when you are a Pharisee or an Orthodox rabbi. This is the blessing that you have to do. So matter of fact, it's very, very simple. It 
actually a little bit more complicated than we think. Every time you're going to sit there and eat, you need to take a, a, a bowl. You need to go ahead and pour water into the right hand and then pour water into the left hand. Then you have to go back again and do it. Pour water to the right hand, pour water to the left hand. By the way, you're still not clean. Now you have to recite the blessing on that Yadim. Then after you recite that blessing on that Yadim, now you are considered clean. See, this is the thing. It's, 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 it's the, the aspects that we don't understand and we don't see. When we read this, most Christians will say, you see, Jesus did away with the law. He's not addressing the law of Moses. He's addressing the law of the Pharisees. What do we learn in Judaism? You see, this is why I encourage everybody to learn Judaism. Not because I'm trying to Judaize you, but the reason why I encouraged for you to learn Judaism, because if you learn Judaism, you can appreciate the gospel much better. If you learn Judaism, you will know that in Judaism, rabbinical Judaism teaches that there's two Torahs. How many Torahs are they? One Torah. Judaism teaches that there's two Torahs. And by the way, when I talk about two Torahs, we're talking about two authorities. So according to the sages of Israel, according to the Mishlei Torah, and Rabbi uh, uh, Nachmanides teaches, and, or the Ramban rather teaches, in the introduction of that, that Moshe was given the written Torah in Mount Sinai, and it was also given the oral Torah in Mount Sinai. There was two Torah according to what they say. And what they say is that the oral Torah carries more weight than the written Torah. Now, granted, folks, you know, this is what we need to understand in order to understand what is Yeshua addressing here. He's addressing in here that he's not saying that doing the blessing for the washing of the hand is evil in itself. He's just saying it ain't going to make you clean. That's the addressing in here. Now, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But here's the thing. Don't enslave your brother to do it. And don't look at your brother as now a sinner because he doesn't do it or she doesn't do it for that matter. There's a balance to all things, folks. You know, and in this congregation, you know, we believe in returning back to the saviors of Israel. I think there's wisdom there, but we don't hold it as authority. There's a difference. I treat it like any other commentary, and I think there's wisdom because they share insights that we as, or for the most part, Gentiles who are coming into this covenant now, who have never grown up in a Semitic understanding, who have never been to the land of Israel, who don't understand Jewish idioms, it is important that we return back to this to understand these idioms so we can properly understand the teachings of our Messiah. Amen. So he's saying in here that this, is the, this does not make a person essentially unclean. What makes a person unclean is all the thoughts. Now it's something that I want to end off today with because again, Yeshua really did everything for us in here. But here's where it can get very dangerous. Right? Because now we translate this, and, and if we have never studied Judaism, we're thinking, well, which by the way, I testify to you right now that I know many Christians who believe that Jesus broke the law. He was teaching the Pharisees, you know, you see that he, that he broke the Sabbath law. It says it. He broke the Sabbath law. And they teach that he did away with the law of Moses, and we can see it clearly through the Gospels. This is why it's important to return back to this. So that we don't come with this nonsense. If you have an NIV version of the Bible. There's a verse that was inserted in here that doesn't belong. And what is the famous verse? Thus he made all things clean. Doesn't exist. Not even the Greek. 
Because Yeshua was not addressing that. Yeshua was addressing the issue of, the issue in here is, if we eat with hands that have not been properly gone through the blessing on the Tilah Hayaim, does that make the food unclean? The Torah doesn't teach that. The Torah, nowhere does it teach that that makes the food unclean because what God has already blessed is blessed. And what he has declared as kosher is kosher, essentially. So this is the issue here in Matthew chapter 15 is dealing with truth versus tradition. Yeshua is addressing the truth of what Moses wrote and the understanding of what Moses wrote versus what the Pharisees were teaching at that time. Now, not to sit in here and start just coming against Judaism, Christianity has a big problem too. Because now we are taking away from the word of God. Do you know that if you take away from the word of God, it's the same as you if you're adding to the word of God? Please tell me to prove it. <laughs> because in Deuteronomy it says, Do shall not add to my word or take away from my word, lest you be made a liar. So if you add into God's word, you are a liar. So guess what? Christians cannot turn around and say, all oh, those Jews and their traditions adding to God's word. Were well, you taken away from God's word? You're just as guilty as they are, according to God's word. He labels them both as liars. Interesting, isn't it? So we conclude today, folks. Let's maintain again the addressing in here that god is dealing with with each and one of us is the matters of the heart here yeshua is using a perfect example of matters of the heart and addressing the things in the spirit and in the mind we're going to start this class of teshuvah this tuesday and i encourage everybody to be in here for that folks because if there's ever a class that has been so vital important ever that we have come up with in this ministry it's probably this one right here now you may be wondering to yourself well i don't want to go because i don't want to feel guilty well, if you feel guilty, by the way, there's no way possible in the world that I'm going to know about it or offer. Because unless you come to me and tell me, hey, pastor, I'm feeling guilty, I would never know. So you can keep that to yourself. But guess what? If you do feel guilty about something during this class, then maybe that's something that you need to deal with God himself. In your own privacy, in your house. So what I'm basically trying to say is, Come to the class. It's a good thing. Don't feel bad. Nobody's going to look at you weird. Oh, come to me because, again, I don't even know what's in your heart. Right? So these are the issues. Amen? Sir. That is true. It is true. It is true. He has a point. That's right. However... However, it is true, and that ultimately, it is the goal, you know, honestly. That's the goal. You know, kind of like the goal is for all of us to not be offended at one another. Ultimately, the goal, and we need to be striving for that goal. We need to be feel comfortable enough to say, yeah, let me confess the sin, especially if I sin against you. I'm supposed to come up to you in humility say, hey, brother, I was wrong. I did this to you. You don't know about it, but I kind of did this to you. You know, that's humility right there. But in all out of fairness and truth, we're dealing right now with issues in here within the assembly with people who are just coming into this, who are just dealing with enough as this with the changes and, and, and you know, adapting to, the, you know, because, again, Torah is a new way of life. So if you're taking this seriously, it is a new way of life. But, yeah, ultimately the goal is to be able to confess our sins to one another, which, by the way, we have that element here. We have people here who have... 
in prayer in the morning, come up to the front here and boldly declare, I have sinned against this person and this and this person. Wow. By the way, I have never witnessed anything like that before. So that says something. That God is working here. There's some great things taking place, and that we need to continue working towards that. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the name of the Lord be upon you forever. Amen. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.